Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, writer, filmmaker, and Zen Buddhist priest Ruth Ozeki joins us to talk about her new novel, The Book of Form and Emptiness, about a teenager who begins to hear everyday objects, a stapler, a pencil, speak to him shortly after the death of his father. Then we'll get your reactions to the news today that General Colin Powell, who served as Secretary of State under President George W. Bush and led the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the first black man to hold those roles, has died at the age of 84. Forum is next. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Please be quiet is the desperate plea of teenage Benny, the protagonist of Ruth Ozeki's new novel, The Book of Form and Emptiness. Benny begins to hear things after his father dies, literally to hear objects from the old lettuce that sighs from the refrigerator to the stapler that yaks away unbidden. Ozeki also makes sure the reader is aware that we are all like Benny. As we read her book, we too experience an object speaking to us. Ruth Ozeki, welcome to Forum. Thank you so much, Mina. So start, if you would, by telling us a little bit more about Benny O and how and when he begins to hear voices. Sure. Um, Yeah, Benny, when he's 12 years old, he loses his father in a tragic and really um, just senseless accident. Um, One of those things that just shouldn't have happened. And um, and he's Benny's asleep when this happens. It happens in the alleyway right outside his house. Um, He hears his mother cry out and run to to the to his father and um, sees watches this from the bedroom window. Um, And after that, you know, uh, this and so this is the the sort of the precipitating event that that, you know, that that starts the book. And um, during the funeral and the uh, the cremation afterwards, Benny suddenly hears his father calling his name, 
and um, and you know it's it's disturbing to him. He doesn't understand it because he knows that his father is dead. Um, but this this um, you know th this persists over the next year or so. You know, from time to time, he would just hear his his dad's voice calling his name, and then. After that, it you know the the experience sort of fades. His father's voice fades out. But what he finds instead is that he's become kind of sensitized, um, you know, sort of very receptive to other voices as well. And and so he starts to hear um, the the voices of, as you said, things in his house um, speaking to him. And, and this is a problem because his mother, Annabelle, is, uh, you know, she's a collector, she's a crafter. Um, yeah. she, she has, you know, she has definite hoarding tendencies. And so their house is filled with things. Um, and it's a very, very cacophonous place. Yes, certainly. I also know that you dedicate this novel to your dad, whose voice you say still guides you. And you've said that you used to hear his voice, literally, yes. especially right after he passed away. So is that yes. the connection here? Yes, it certainly is. Um, after my after my dad died, and he died in, in 1998, so, so quite a while ago now, um, probably, again, for about a year after he died, um, I would you know, be doing something in the house, something, you know, fairly random and insignificant, like, you know, folding the laundry or washing the dishes, or um, occasionally this happened, you know, as I was, you know, sort of on the brink of sleep or or just waking up. So there was a kind of dreamlike quality to it sometimes as well. Um, but I would hear him clear his throat and then um, call my name. And it always came from the same place. It was always sort of over my right shoulder kind of behind me mm. and I would whip around and and look you know expecting to see him because it sounded so real and I'd look you know I'd turn and look and um and and of course there'd be nobody there and and every time this happened I remember uh, you know feeling again this you know the pang of of grief and and loss remembering you know that that of course he's he's um he's dead and um and so this was you know this was something that um as i said you know it happened for about a year but then it it kind of stopped and the instances were so quick and so fleeting that i didn't really think about it too much i just kind of went on with what it you know what it was that i was doing um and and disregarded it um but then later uh, you know for various reasons i started thinking about you know the fictional writing process and um and how in fiction of course you know i hear voices too not in the same way perhaps but um you know but it's it's uh, perhaps akin to that experience I understand that you and the character Benny share the same experience of hearing your father's voice, but it also informed the way you developed who Benny is, his character. Yeah, um, you mean the 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 experience of grief? Yes, and yeah, also yeah. just your own experience of it. Is that what really informed oh. who Benny became? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I um, shared with Benny this experience of hearing his dad's voice. Um, but then, you know, I started thinking about voice hearing, you know, in, in a broader perspective. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, again, as a fiction writer, I, you know, I, I routinely hear the voices of my characters um, speaking to me. And I was talking about this, I remember at a, at a library event and, and somebody there, um, a, a middle-aged man um, raised his hand and asked, you know, if when I spoke about 
characters' voices, you know, was I hearing them with my ear as though they were outside me? Or was it more like I was hearing them inside my head, you know, with, with my mind? And, um, and, and, oh, the reason that he asked was because his son heard voices as if they were outside his head. And, and the voices were very disturbing. Um, and, you know, he found this to be, you know, he, he really suffered as a result of this. Um, and, and so at that point, I remembered, you know, my, my dad's voice and, and um, that experience. And I explained to, you know, the, the father that, um, you know, certainly when I, you know, when I heard my dad's voice, it was if, as if it was outside my head, but my relationship with my character's voices is a more internal one. Um, I hear yeah. their voices with my mind, but it did start me thinking about, you know, this spectrum of this experience of hearing voices. And on one hand, on one side of the spectrum, you know, artists and writers and musicians hear you know, hear things. And, and this is thought of as, um, you know, inspirational and, you know, it's, it's really prized in our society. Right. But on the other hand, oh, and then of course, there's always the intermediate, um, types of voices, the, the internalized, you know, inner critics and the judges who are constantly yammering at us and telling us that, you know, whatever it is that we're writing really is terrible and we should just go out and get a real job, you know? Um, and I'm of course very familiar with those voices as well. And, and then, you know, there's these other voices that, um, that people hear, um, again, as if they're outside their head. And if, if you, you know, uh, share that piece of information with, um, you know, with a psychiatrist, chances are you will be, um, you know, you will be uh, diagnosed with some kind of pathology, um, either schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder or something along those lines. Um, and, and so it started me thinking about this experience as a kind of spectrum and how, you know, when is it problematic and when is it, when is it you know, not problematic and, and who gets to decide? Yes, that's exactly what I was wondering, whether you were exploring that boundary between, mm. between, I guess, sanity and not, or rationality and irrationality, and, and who draws those boundaries. Were you able to reach some kind of insight into that? Well, you know, my feeling is that, you know, again, it, it really goes back to this idea of who gets to decide what's real or not real who gets to decide what's rational or not you know or irrational you know um who gets to decide to decide what's you know what's pathological and what's not and and it you know i was thinking too about this this idea of normal you know yeah. that we all seem to we all seem to you know cling to this idea that that there is a thing called normal right a setting called normal um and what we what we forget is that normal is a you know, is a social construct. We, we made this up, right? We made up the idea of normal. And, and we then decide some people fall into that category and, you know, others don't. Um, and and that's, uh, that seems to me to be unfortunate. I think that, you know, the word normal certainly could, you know, be expanded to be more generous and more all-inclusive, um, especially when you think about, you know, the fact that, you know, there, that many people um, do hear voices, often the way I heard, you know, um, uh, the voice of my dad speaking to me, um, very, it's it's not uncommon for people to hear voices after a loved one passes. Um, But also, you know, I mean, 
other people, historical people have talked about uh, voice hearing, um, including people like Mahatma Gandhi and, you know, Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung, the fathers of, you know, of, of psychotherapy, mm -hmm. talked about hearing voices, their own voices, right, um, in, in, their, in their minds, in their heads. Um, and so I think that, you know, these are, certainly these are unshared experiences, right? Um, the, this sent Benny's um, experience of hearing, you know, the voices of a piece of wilted lettuce or his running shoe um, talking to him. These are these are experiences that he's having um, that are unshared. But then again, you know, when I hear my characters talk to me, right, that's also an unshared experience. And and you know, for me, the process of writing a novel is the process of sharing it and sharing that you know, that experience with you and with, you know, anyone who reads, yes. um, who reads the novel. So in any case, it just, I, I think that's what I was really thinking about was, you know, how these boundaries, you know, perhaps ought to be re-examined and, um, and made more all-inclusive. There's one other big thing coming up on a break that, that you're also exploring here, and that is investing sentient qualities in insentient objects. Can you talk about what you were exploring there with that? Sure. I mean, this really comes from, uh, you know, a long standing uh, interest in, in Japanese culture. You know, my, my, uh, my mother is Japanese, so I'm, I'm half Japanese myself. And, um, and just noticing how, you know, Japanese culture, you know, uh, for, for, you know, thousands of years, for hundreds of years has been, um, you know, based on animist traditions. Um, and, you know, you can see this certainly in, in you know, manga and in, in, you know, anime, you know, that, that things speak, right? Things have agency, things have voices. Um, and it's also, um, you know, it, it, there's, a, there's a very famous Zen koan um, or, or question, um, do insentient beings speak the Dharma? Mm. And, and so this was also something that I was, you know, I was investigating and thinking about as I was writing the book. We're talking to Ruth Ozeki. Her new novel is The Book of Form and Emptiness. You may know her from her previous books, A Tale for the Time Being, which was a Booker Prize finalist and My Year of Meats. What would you like to ask Ruth Ozeki? Or how does what Ruth is saying about voices make you think about the voices of lost loved ones or the voices of things or your relationships to things. You can call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can email us, forum at kqed.org, or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. 
You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Author, filmmaker, and Zen Buddhist priest Ruth Ozeki is with us. Her new novel is The Book of Form and Emptiness, about our relationship to objects, loss, and the boundary between sentience and insentience. And you can join the conversation with your questions or thoughts. What objects speak to you, or do you find yourself ever speaking to them? What are your thoughts about hearing voices, the voices of lost ones, or the voices of things? 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Email forum at kqed.org or post thoughts on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. One of the things that I was struck by is you also, there's almost like a a difference in the way that you describe the voices. So things that are... Um, are made, for example, have a little bit more of a louder or what feels like a more obnoxious voice than things like trees and pebbles, which you write, quote, are a lot quieter and don't shout as much and they speak in lower registers. I was wondering what you were thinking about as you set up this difference. You know, I was, I think I was, um, you know, I was playing with, you know, with this, you know, this idea, but it certainly did occur to me that, um, you know, well, I mean, human beings make a lot of noise, right? We're, we're constantly chattering away, right? And, um, and that made objects, things that are made, you know, and manufactured by humans, um, you know, it, it's so easy to buy an object, right? It's so easy to buy something. Yes. But when you really think about what goes into the making of that object, it's actually very, very complex. And many people's lives have intersected and somehow contributed to the emergence of that object, you know, that you then, you know, whatever, buy on Amazon and, and gets shipped to your house, right? But when you think about the actual manufacturing and distribution process, um, it, it's very complex and involves many, many, many people. And and so I was, you know, uh, playing with this idea and thinking, you know, what if, because that's what the novelist does, thinks, you know, constantly thinking, what if, right? What if, you know, the, the you know, the ghosts of, of all of those people who've had anything to do with the manufacture of this pencil, right? Or this, <clears throat> excuse me, this running shoe. Um, you know, if, if those ghosts still kind of clung to the shoe, right? Um, suddenly, you know, the world would be a very crowded place, right? The, the world of objects would be, would be, you know, a very crowded place. And my office right now would be swarming with beings, right? Um, and, and so I was, you know, I was thinking about that because, of course, made objects didn't used to be like that. You know, made objects, you used to know who the maker was, right? Mm -hmm. um, very often, it might be, you know, it might be somebody in the village down the road, you know, who, who made your, um, who made your shoe or, you know, um, your, your uh, whatever, you know, your, your sewing needle, right? Um, so it, it's, things have gotten very complicated, right? <laughs> yes. and, um, and I wanted to play with that idea. I've seen a couple of reviewers characterize your novel as a response to consumerism. Would you agree with that interpretation? Well, you know, I, I suppose I would in the sense that, um, or, or materialism, you know, um, we live in a materialist, you know, consumer culture. And, um, you know, when I look around, you know, everything I see pretty much, you know, unless I look out the window is, is a made object, something that I've bought or that somebody has bought. And, and so, you know, yes, my visual field, my mental field is, is very much um, taken, you know, occupied by, 
objects that um, you know that I've purchased, right, or or um, that have been you know that have been somehow mass produced, um, and and so I suppose it is, you know, because that's the world that we live in, and you know, as a novelist, uh, you know, that's kind of what I do. I respond to the world as I you know as I see it, as I experience it. Well, let me go to some calls coming in. Danielle in Santa Rosa. Hi. Hello. How are you? I'm well. What's on your mind? Well, uh, listening to you and uh, for people hearing voices. When I was 14, my father died and my mother was very angry about it. And in the middle of the night, she would have arguments with him that would last for a long time. And obviously, she heard the answer because she responded. And that went on for months, I would say, two or three months at least. Wow. And uh, I just remember that very clearly because it would wake me up, obviously, and I would sit there and listen. Well, thanks for sharing that story. Ruth, I don't know if you have a reaction yet for Danielle. Yeah, well, you know, it's... it's, um... As I said, it's not uncommon for people to hear the voices of, you know, somebody who has just passed on. Um, and, you know, this is, uh, you, I've, heard, I've read, you know, accounts of this when I was writing this book. I've read many, many accounts um, of exactly that. Um, and it can be a very frightening thing. And I'm just wondering if you were frightened when you, when you were a little girl and, and you heard this. No, I wasn't really. I was more... I think shocked or mm. um, I more interested mm, to yes. see what was happening. Uh, I don't remember being frightened. No. Good, good, well, good. Danielle, oh, well, that's really interesting. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for sharing that story. As Danielle talks about uh, her mother, Ruth Ozeki, you know, Benny and his mother both have very different relationships to objects in their lives. Benny's mother, Annabelle, for example, as you mentioned, a collector, a hoarder, to numb almost the pain, it feels like, of her father's death. So in different ways, they are overwhelmed by the material world. Could you talk a little bit more about why you set up also this sort of juxtaposition in terms of each character's relationship to things? Though it does feel like in both cases, objects kind of have the upper hand. (laughs) I know, I know. Well, I, you know, I mean, I think that's probably true, you know, in, in our world, you know, that objects are really, you know, gaining the upper hand around here. Um, but no, when I was, um, again, you know, it, it goes back to my parents, I think, um, when, when they died, um, uh, I inherited their house and I had to, you know, I had to clear out their objects. Um, you know, they had, had a house filled with things. And, um, so as I was, you know, as I was doing this, Oh, I should also mention that my parents were, you know, born um, in 1914, right? And so they were children, they were, you know, alive during the Depression. They were really, you know, Depression-era people. And um, and they saved everything, you know, the every, when they used a piece of plastic wrap, they, you know, they would wash it and dry it and fold it up for reuse. Um, same with aluminum foil, um, you know, pieces of string. Uh, they, they really saved, and, and it wasn't hoarding, um, but it was just an extreme form of, of thriftiness. Um, also, my mother was Japanese, and so you know um, she had a lot of the objects that had uh, you know come from that she'd gotten from her parents, and these were very mysterious, exotic 
Japanese objects. You know, I grew up in, in Connecticut, right? I'd never seen things like this before. And I, um, I grew very attached to them. Um, so they had a kind of weight and significance, um, you know, to me as well. And on my dad's side, he, he's, um, an anthro he was an anthropologist um, and an uh, honorary member of the Oneida tribe. And so he had objects that people had given him, you know, as gifts. And I was struck by the fact that, you know, all of these objects had stories, but I didn't know what they were. And I remember as I was cleaning out the house, just wishing that these objects could speak, right? And feeling that that all of these things were just fraught with meaning, you know, but it was just slightly outside, out my, you know, out of my reach. And I think Annabelle has that relationship with objects too. Um, you know, everything is meaningful to her. You know, she sees the the sort of the vitality and the, you know, the, the, what, the vibrant nature of, um, of material things. And she responds to that, right? And she, she wants to, um, she wants to keep it, or she wants to make sure that it has, a, you know, uh, that these things have a good home, you know, she's a very, um, I think she's a very, in that sense, she's, she's appreciates the aliveness of inanimate objects. Yes, you were referring earlier to the koan about insentient beings speaking the Dharma. And I guess the way that I thought about it as I was reading your novel and thinking about the voices and what what role these objects are playing, it felt like, certainly it seemed like insentient beings, which is an interesting oxymoron in and of itself, but yeah, right, um, right. that they they have the power to enlighten, um, to teach. Yes, that's, and I think that's, you know, that's the, that's really what is at the heart of that, of that koan. Um, you know, the, this, um, you know, do, do, I mean, look, you know, trees, grasses, you know, um, uh, th these are alive things, right? Um, they're living things. Um, and, and they, they can, you know, obviously they can teach us um, very important lessons if we choose to listen. Um, but we tend to, you know, I think we tend to not listen perhaps as much as we should. Um, I, I certainly, you know, I certainly feel that, that, you know, that, uh, you know, I, I actually, I spent the summer battling to save a row of cherry trees in my neighborhood here in mm. Massachusetts. And um, we failed, eventually we failed and these beautiful old trees were cut down. Um, but, you know, um, one of the things that we did um, in order to try to persuade the city to to not cut down the trees was um, we ordained them as as Zen Buddhist priests um, because we felt that these trees have something very profound um, that we should learn from and and they they can be our teachers. Um, you know, unfortunately, yeah. the the mayor did not agree with us. Well, I'm sorry to hear about yeah. the loss yeah. of the trees. Let me go to caller Jack in San Francisco. Hi, Jack. Yes. Hi. 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 Go right Thank ahead. Uh, how are you? I'm I'm a, what they call a stone river, which is kind of a it's a rare kind of Native American. I mean, what I mean is we don't really exist anymore, but um, a stone river is someone who um, delivers prayer objects to the wilderness for other people. And long ago in prehistory, your prayer object was almost invariably a small stone or a pebble that you carried with you in your travels. We were, we were mainly uh, uh, nomads and 
spiritual wanderers roaming the earth doing our our um hunting and gathering and so your prayer object was usually small for that reason we could only carry so much so our prayer object was usually just a little pebble and when you felt it was full of your love and your prayers and had sampled a lot of your experience your unique experience then um you felt it was full and you would give it back to the world and then you would find another prayer pebble and do the same thing and people uh felt that it was it would it was um better if you could give it to a stone mover because we would deliver it for you and we would um we were individuals who could go just a little bit further into the wilderness, a little bit deeper into the forest, a little bit high, up higher up onto the up into the mountains to deliver your prayer pebble to a place of solitude where God was present most or where where there were less people, as you were saying, people tend to chatter a lot and create a lot of confusion. Yeah. And so this is just uh, I'm just sharing this with you because uh, we're kind of extinct. You know, I happen to be one of the last stone movers that mm-hmm. I know. The last stone mover who I ever met died a long time ago. I knew him when I was 15, and I'm 58 now. I've been a stone mover since the age of three, and usually um, they're identified by your parents or your elders or the elders of a tribe. And uh, so nowadays, if the child is caught collecting pebbles and stones and putting them in places or asking people if they have a stone or giving pebbles to others, you're deemed as being silly. The child stops doing it because someone tells them that it's silly. But in the Native American cultures, we don't prevent children from doing things that are eccentric. I just wanted to put that out there. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you putting that out there, Jack. Wow. And, that's yeah. that's beautiful. That's such a beautiful story. And it, it once again, you know, goes back to what I was saying about, you know, what what we call normal versus what we, you know, and, and what we uh, think of as outside of normal. And, and this is, you know, that's such a beautiful story. I love that story. Thank you so much. Yes. And Judd in San Francisco writes, my introduction to inanimate objects that speak was in animated movies, talking teapots, especially Disney and Warner Brothers. I'm now a big fan of Studio Ghibli. And this listener writes, I hear voices of very recognizable people like my dad, brother, mother, fiance, mostly on the edge of sleep, some when the people are alive, some not. But it is so distinct and real that I always wake up and am convinced that someone is there, not so much for inanimate objects or other living things except trees. I hear them all the time. This is not scary or even strange to me. Uh, in some ways, that is so much your your point, right? <laughs> that yeah, it, that's well, lovely. Yeah, that's strange. That's beautiful. Um, Israel and Berkeley. Let's see if we can get you in here. So I've had a relationship with plants over the years that most people don't seem to understand. It occurs to me that um, most people see plants as little more than an inanimate object, yet. Um, I sense when they're thirsty. Um, I sense when they want my attention. It's not a voice. It's a sensation in my mind, like like a thought tugging at me, like something I... And, and recently I got an air plant, a small air plant that um, I'm getting to know. Um, when I forget to water her, I'll water her at night. And I sense when I wake her up, she's sleeping. And I, I water her and... That wakes her up, and that's in wake. It's very, very clear. Well, that is a that's lovely beautiful. image. 
Israel, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. And and as you were talking about sense, I'm reminded of something else you wrote, uh, Ruth, where you were talking at one point where where uh, Benny doesn't always hear words, but he hears words tangled up in the sounds, but can't quite understand them. And uh, that's and that sounds exactly that. what is like what Israel is is describing. There is is <laughs> a kind of felt sense of you know the the vitality in the plant. You know the the life force in the plant. That's great. Yeah. Well, let me see if I can get Jerome in Alameda here who writes, most fascinating and brave on your guest part to call out the intimate voices of objects we surround ourselves with. I do not per se hear voices from all the precious things I surround myself with, but I do imbue them with memories. Who gave me what, when, where, who is still alive, how I felt when receiving the gift. Herein lies the magic of these whispered voices and objects that otherwise mean nothing to others. I want to ask you about one last thing, which is I heard, Ruth Ozeki, that you, during the writing of this book, if someone gifted you something, you put it in the novel. Yes, exactly. Well, and, and this is exactly what, you know, this last person um, mentioned. Um, you know, I knew I was writing, I, I knew that the book needed to be filled with objects, and I didn't know quite how to choose, right? And so I just decided, well, I'll just leave it to chance. And um, when somebody, you know, gave me something, I would, you know, and especially, you know, that you have a kind of feeling when you when you receive something. Um, and and uh, I would put it in the book. So for example, um, a friend of mine came back from a trip uh, to the Bahamas, and she brought me a little snow globe with a sea turtle inside. Um, and knowing that I have a fondness for sea turtles, and um, and so I immediately gave this snow globe to Annabelle. And then the next thing I knew, Annabelle was on eBay collecting snow globes, right? And and so the snow globes kind of proliferated throughout the book. Um, there's also a character in the book. Um, called the Aleph, who is uh, an artist, a young, uh, young artist who Benny falls in love with. Right. Um, and uh, she, in her, you know, in her studio, she's making um, disaster snow globes, kind of <laughs> catastrophic snow globes, um, commemorating things like Hurricane Katrina or Hurricane Sandy or, or 9-11. And so, you know, this, this snow globe image kind of proliferated throughout the book. Yes. Well, there is so much sort of serendipity and just life and its randomness that, that enters mm-hmm. into this. And I, I, But in all of that, you really do remind us how connected we are. So thank you for this book, Ruth Ozeki, and for talking with us today. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure, Mina. The new novel is The Book of Form and Emptiness. Coming up, we'll be remembering Colin Powell. So stay with us for that. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.